Good morning. Welcome to Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. We're excited that you're with us today, whether you're here in person or online. Thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Ian. I'm one of the pastors here. And, uh, yeah, it's a great morning to be in church. This is our first morning that I came to, like, into the sanctuary, and I've been like, whew, yeah, summer's here. I'm feeling a little hot. So it's exciting. It's exciting. A couple of announcements. Um, first of all, we need movers on May 29th. For um, Jerry Lilligan is moving. Um, if you want details, please call the church if you're able to help out. Um, also, for VBS, which is coming up uh, in July, we need um, we need volunteers. Lots of different positions. If you want to help with kids, if you want to help with setup, whatever it is, um, there's plenty of places to serve. Um, contact Sherilyn Coach, uh, or you can talk to her in the back. She's in the corner there. There's Sherilyn. Talk to her if you want to help out with VBS. Um, on the back of your bulletin, we have our annual meeting coming up. And part of that is voting on elders and other board positions and also celebrating this year and taking a look back at what God has done. So if you could attend, that would be awesome. That's on June 6th. Um, yeah, if you want more details, please contact the church office. But you can see on the back the list of different um, positions that are getting voted on. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to the worship team. All right, good morning. We're going to invite you to stand up and worship this morning. Uh, start with a couple, a little bit more up-tempo songs. So we'll get you moving. I know everyone's a little sleepy, at least I am, with the cool weather change overnight. So I wanted to sleep in. But we're here. We're rejoicing. So.
all of you, for those of you who are visiting, or, and I know me, my name is Tim, I'm one of the other pastors here at Free Lake Evangelical Free Church, and it's good to be with you this morning, we worship God together, and as we 
continue this time of worship, one of the ways we want to invite you to worship is through giving. So if you want to contribute to what God is doing in and through this church, you can drop gifts and like giving in the boxes on the back wall, or you can give online at helefc.org slash give. If you're here, you're visiting, or you're new, please know that we're not asking you to give. We want this service to be a gift to you, but for those of you who are regular attenders or members here, we want to contribute to what we're doing. Those are ways to do that. We just, we just sang a song that, that starts with the words that he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become right, the righteousness. Right? Because of what Jesus does for us, because of what Jesus did on the cross, dying on our behalf, we become, we inherit, we gain his righteousness and God sees us as if we are righteous like Jesus is. And that's a great and wonderful thing. And so we want to praise him for that this morning and we want to also pray to him this morning, thanking him for that. So will you pray with me? Father, it is truly amazing and glorious that even though we were lost in sin, we were dead in our sin and trespasses, that you sent Jesus and lived a perfect life, and yet he died a sinner's death, so that through belief I and we who trust in him could be made righteous, could receive his righteousness as if we lived the sinless life that he lived. God, I confess that I so often slip into taking that for granted, that I lose sight of what an amazing and glorious truth that is. So God, this morning as we come and as we worship you, as we sing songs of praise, as we hear your word, as we gather together as your people, God, would you still our heart right now and let us feel and sense and know what an amazing and precious thing you did for us in Jesus. God, would everything that takes place this morning, the songs we sing, the words that leave our mouth, would they be uh, an overflow of our amazement at how much you love us? Would we sing? Would we hear your word in light of all that you've done for us in Jesus? Knowing that we can do nothing to earn your favor, that we can do nothing here this morning to make you love us more, that you invite us to come and to worship you in light of how much you've already shown your love for us. Yeah, will we do that this morning? Would we be amazed by your love for us, your care for us? Yeah, for those who are wrestling with different trials, whether physical pain, emotional pain, whatever it may be, God, would they, especially this morning, feel an overwhelming sense of your love and care for them? Would they be drawn to look to Jesus and see such a tangible example of your love and care for them? 
Lord, that love and care give them the strength and the endurance to continue on through whatever trials they're facing. God, would you be glorified this morning as we sing to you, as we hear your word, and would we leave here more amazed by what a great God you are, what a great Savior Jesus is, and we leave here conformed more and more into the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand again. And it is so good to see everybody here this morning. It really is. Um, you know, like as we're up here and we're, we're thinking about so many different things all the time, we've got ear, in-ear monitors in our ears and we're listening to each other and whatever. And once in a while I just kind of I look out and I see everybody singing and I, I, I see the worship happening. And that is honestly the most beautiful moments of Sundays for me is just to see God working in this room and to see people worshiping. And it really feels like we're just a conduit up here to help everybody to worship. This first song we're going to sing is Waymaker. It starts out, you are here moving in our midst. And those words, that is so true. There are days when we're up here and we're playing and we're, we're listening to you guys sing and you can feel this room. You can feel God moving in this room. So just pray that as we sing this, you'd um, listen to those words and just feel free to worship in whatever way is comfortable to you.
Father, we do praise you that you are holy, that you are mighty, that you are great. We do to pray that you would stir us to honor you, to praise you, to glorify you in all that we do as we go about our day-to-day lives and as we come to your word now this morning. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The last couple weeks, we've been in the book of Ruth. So, two weeks ago we read, I went through Ruth 1, last week Ruth 2. So this morning we're going to be in Ruth chapter 3. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to, to turn to Ruth chapter 3. The words will be on the screen as well. If you are looking for Ruth in your Bible and having a hard time finding it, like, don't feel bad. It's just like tiny little books sandwiched between these big long books. Right? So it's right between Judges and First Samuel. Kind of snuck in there. It's only four chapters. So we have this week, we'll do chapter three. Next week, we'll do chapter four. And then we'll be done with Ruth. And so even though this week, this morning, is the last morning of Sunday school for the year for our kids, I'm still going to have cross-training next Sunday just because it feels right to finish Ruth going through cross-training after the service. So if you want to come to that either this Sunday or next Sunday right after the service at 10.30, we will do that. So Ruth, chapter 3, so we'll be this morning. So I met, I met my wife, Vanessa, when we were both in college at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. And I'm like super grateful for that. Mostly I'm grateful that I met her because I like her. <laughs> but also I'm grateful that I just met a spouse in college. Right? Like college is like this place where all these like young, generally single people are thrown together in one place, right? which makes finding a spouse maybe not easy, but like relatively easier than in other situations. Right? Like, I can't imagine trying to find a spouse in adulthood after college. Like, I tend to be a little bit shy, a little bit socially awkward in new situations, and so like, trying to find a spouse like, out in the world post-college just seems like a, a daunting task. And I know I can't be the one that feels that way, because you can look at the rise of online dating over the last few decades. According to a recent study, 39% of couples who started dating in 2017, met online. 39%. Making meeting online far and away the most common way to meet your significant other. For comparison's sake, 27% met in a restaurant or a bar, 20% met through friends, 7% through family, and 4% in college. And so 39% of couples met online in 2017. That's up from 22% in 2009, and 10% in 2000. And that growth shows no signs of slowing down. I have a graph of the growth here. So the red line is online dating. How many people met online? It's just up and up and through the roof. Like the reason for that growth kind of makes sense. Because right? online dating provides a solution to an otherwise difficult problem. Like how do you meet someone in adulthood and like pursue a relationship with them when you both have separate, busy lives. And for many people, online dating has become the answer to that problem. So last week we were in 
Ruth chapter 2, which, generally speaking, was a, a happy chapter. Ruth, the Moabite, goes out to Boaz's field to glean in order to provide food for her family and for Naomi. Right? And, so, and Boaz generously gives Naomi and Ruth everything they need to live. There's just one problem. The last sentence of Ruth chapter 2 reads this. And she, that is Ruth, lived with her mother-in-law. So Ruth chapter 2 saw Naomi and Ruth's immediate needs cared for. But that sentence is not a sentence that any woman wants to be true of her for the long term. Like, Ruth needs to find a husband who will provide for her and give her a home to live in. But unfortunately for Ruth, there wasn't a lot of online dating going on back in 1100 B.C. So she needs to find someone to marry, but it's going to be a little more challenging than it might be now. Especially when, like Ruth, you're poor. Especially when, like Ruth, you're a widow. And especially when, like Ruth, you're in Israel as a foreigner from Moab, the enemy of the Israelites in many cases. It's going to be an uphill climb for Ruth to find someone to marry. And so Ruth chapter 3, this morning we're going to read, like, picks up trying to rectify that situation. But in a bit of a twist, there's going to be Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, who's going to take the initiative to find Ruth a spouse. Up to this point in the book, it's, been, it's always been Ruth taking, taking the initiative. She took the initiative to return to Israel with Naomi instead of staying in Moab. She took the initiative to go out and glean, even though it meant putting herself at risk. Meanwhile, Naomi has been bitter and passive and indifferent and not taking initiative. But at the very end of chapter 2 last week, right, we saw how God's graciousness, how God was gracious in giving Ruth success in gleaning, had started to transform Naomi. How, how Naomi had regained a sense of hope through that experience. And that sense of hope she had regained prompts her here to take initiative and hatch a plan to get Ruth married. But this plan we're going to see, it's an audacious plan. It's a plan fraught with risk. There's no guarantee that it's going to work. And in fact, it kind of forces Ruth and Boaz into some messy, like morally gray areas. Like it is not a perfect faultless, black and white plan. It's easy to read the Bible and think, oh, that happened, so it had to happen that way. And everything that they do must be perfectly right. But that's not the case. This is a, a messy, difficult plan. It was a plan that, like much of our lives, is messy. Like, there are not always easy answers to every situation in life. Like Sometimes we have to act. We have to step forward into a situation when we're not sure what the best path forward is. Like it'd be nice right, if every decision, like every situation went black and white, but that's not how life works. Like we've probably all been around people who like, have a very strong conviction on every issue and they're super confident in their assessment. Like They know for certain everything they believe is 100% right. 
But I would argue that like, the way you get to that kind of position is by having an overly simplistic view of the world. That if you're really taking into consideration all the factors of a situation, that there's going to be a lot of gray areas sometimes. That there are things that are not always clear-cut. Things are not always obvious. But we still have to take action. What we're going to see this morning is that God is at work through our actions. Specifically here, like Naomi's plan shows how God works through human action. Even even when we aren't 100% confident that our actions are right. And what I hope this passage does is that it gives us confidence to step in to messy, hard situations. Even when we don't know for sure what the best step forward is. That we step in, and we step in with hearts that are honoring God, and as we do that, we step in desiring to glorify God That we would step in and we would trust God to take care of the results. We would trust that our God is big enough to work, even through our missteps, even through our failures, even through our uncertainties, to bring about his good purposes. So with that in mind, let's look at this plan that Naomi cooks up. Ruth chapter 3. In these verses, Naomi lays out her plan to get Ruth married. And I counted. This is my, my 45th sermon since I started here. And I'm fairly certain that like, no passage has given me as much difficulty as this one. That is due in large part to the fact that like, no one, like no commentators, no one can agree on what is exactly going on in this passage. But like one commentator, talking about verse 4, which we'll get to in a minute, said, nearly every word in this verse can be understood in multiple ways which is challenging. Like we could spend weeks just breaking down this passage and exploring all the interpretive options. But ultimately, ultimately that won't be helpful to our souls. What really matter for our souls is to understand what this passage teaches us about God and how that understanding of God should impact our lives. So as we go through this passage this morning, I'm going to do my best to tell you what I think is going on. In a few places, I'll give you a couple possible different interpretive options that are possible. But the good news is, ultimately, I think that what this passage really means for us and how it should impact our lives is pretty clear. So after we get through the passage, walk through the passage, and we get a sense of what's going on, I want to come back at the end and really focus on what it means for us and how it should impact how we live our day-to-day lives and how we understand who God is. First, let's see if we can get a sense of what's going on. So Naomi starts out this chapter by saying, I must find a home for you where you will be provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. And so a few minutes ago, we said, we said, like, Naomi has emerged from her, like, hopeless and dejected state, and then now she's taking initiative, right, to find Ruth Huffman. I must find a home for you, like a husband for you. And the most logical choice of a husband is Boaz. So possibly after Boaz met Ruth back in chapter 2, 
both Naomi and Ruth are hoping that Boaz would be the one who would take the initiative and pursue Ruth. But now the barley harvest and the wheat harvest have both passed by and it's winnowing time, which means like seven or eight weeks have gone by since Ruth, Ruth and Boaz first met. And then nothing has happened in that area. And so Naomi decides it's time to make her move. So in verse 3, Naomi tells Ruth to wash, put on perfume. And the NIV says, your best clothes. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. And so that word that the NIV translates best clothes really just means outer garment, like cloak, right? So the ESV translates it. Like put on your cloak, which I think is probably more plausible of translation than best clothes. But there's also another possible way to understand this, and there's an interesting parallel with 2 Samuel 12. So David's son has just died, and 2 Samuel 12:20 says, Then David got up from the ground after he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, the same words there, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And so David does this after mourning, the, after a period of mourning for the death of his son. And he takes these actions, he washes, he puts on ointments or lotions, and he changes his clothes. And that symbolizes an end to his time of mourning. And so it's possible that up to this time in the story of Ruth, she's been wearing clothes that symbolize that she was in mourning for her dead husband. And now Naomi wants her to take off her mourning clothes and put on regular clothes as a sign to Boaz that she is now ready to move on and to remarry. And so she bathes and she dresses. And Naomi tells Ruth to go to the threshing floor. And then, when he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. So this is, this is where the boldness and the audacity of this plan starts to show up. Right. So threshing floors are located outside of the city because threshing is a messy job that like relies on the wind to separate chaff from the grain that's tossed up in the air. Right. So you throw the grain up, the wind blows, it carries the chaff away, the grain falls back down. It's a messy job, so you don't want to do that next to people's houses. And the wind was best for this job in the evening. So people often slept out at the threshing floor by their grain to protect it from being stolen. Right, so at threshing time, you would have all these men sleeping outside the city, right, removed from polite society. Right. And I want to like, keep this family friendly, but like, it was the type of situation that drew a woman who saw an opportunity to exploit that situation for financial gain. Right? It just it happened. And so now Ruth, who's a Moabite, who from a nation that's known for seducing Israelite men, is going to go out into the night into this situation. You see how, like, how easily Ruth's actions could have been misinterpreted. Naomi, in hatching this plan, is putting a lot of faith into the quality of Boaz's character. In the, in the fact that he will act honorably when Ruth puts herself in this vulnerable situation. 
And that's why, like, Naomi says, note the place where he is lying. Like, she's saying, like, don't do this to the wrong person. Like, if you trust somebody else, it's going to go really bad. So don't do that. This is a plan, even trusting Boaz's character, that is fraught with risk. Like, it would not be hard to make the case that maybe this plan goes too far. That it was wrong of Naomi to even suggest this plan. That she risked too much by putting Ruth in this situation. But Naomi felt an obligation to Ruth to find a husband, help her find a husband. And she didn't know how, how else to do it. So she uses this bold maneuver. So I just imagine, like, Naomi herself must have felt conflicted as she thought about this plan, thought about this plan, like, debated whether it was the right thing to do or not. But she decided she must do something for Ruth. So she proposed this plan. She trusted God with the results. The last step in this plan is for Ruth to uncover Boaz's feet and to lie down. This is one of those places where like the theories of what this means to uncover the feet and lie down, like what does that mean? Like the interpretations are widely varied. Some of them are very explicit. But we don't get any indication from this book that anything immoral happens between Ruth and Boaz. So I think these words mean exactly what they say. Like that Ruth is to uncover Boaz's feet and then lie down and see what happens. As recently reading an article about like, how to sleep better. And one of the things that the article said was that we sleep better when our bodies are cool. They're cooler than they are during the day. We want to sleep in a cooler environment. But we live in such climate-controlled homes, and many people prefer to sleep with blankets on them, that we often are too warm when we try to sleep, and so we don't sleep as well. And so one of their quick fixes for how to sleep better was to sleep with your feet uncovered. Because your body can radiate a lot of heat out of the bottom of your feet when you're sleeping with them uncovered. That'll help get you to a more ideal sleeping situation. And so that, that helps us when we're in our nice, cozy, temperature-controlled homes. But if you're sleeping outside in Israel, at the time of year when the overnight lows are like in the high 40s or low 50s, if you suddenly lose a lot of heat out of the bottom of your feet, it's not going to make you cozier. It's going to make you cold enough to wake you up. And so that's what happens here. Right? And when, Booth, um, when Boaz wakes up, surprise, like, Ruth is there lying at his feet. And Naomi tells Ruth to let Boaz take the lead from there. Right? And so that's the, that's the plan that Naomi concocts. It's full of risk. It's full of potential misinterpretation. Like, frankly, like it shouldn't work. But it is a plan. And Ruth agrees to it in verse 5, saying, I will do whatever you say. So now it's up to Ruth to put the plan in action, which she does starting in verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. 
he turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. And so, I think probably the thing that startled him was just that like, his feet were cold. Right? And so, like, Boaz wakes up, and he adjusts the covers, and all of a sudden, boom, like, there's Ruth lying at his feet. Like, if you have, or ever have had, small kids, like, you know the feeling, right? Like, you're sound asleep, and like, somewhere from the depths of your sleep, you just hear this voice calling, like, in my case, it's, Papa, Papa, right? And, like, you're all groggy, so you, like, slowly open your eyes, and you're trying to adjust, and all of a sudden, like, bam, like, three inches from your face. And there's a kid's face there. Like, it's a, it's a startling experience. Like, all because they, like, needed a drink of water or something. And it's a, it can be startling. Like, but at least I, in that situation, have the expectation, like, I, I know my kids live here. Like, something like this is possible. Like, I am kind of half mentally prepared for something like that. Like, Boaz has no expectation. Like, he's sleeping outside on the threshing floor. Like, no one should be by him. But all of a sudden, he wakes up and he sees someone lying there. Right? And in his grogginess and in his surprise, all he can manage to say in verse 9 is, Who are you? To which Ruth replies, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. So here, notice, Ruth deviates from Naomi's plan a little bit. Naomi said, like, you go lie down and then you let Boaz take the lead. But like, as soon as Boaz acknowledges her presence, Ruth blurts out, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. So like this idea of spread the corner of your garment over me, it was Ruth saying to Boaz, like, hey, marry me. Like that's what it, like the way marriage proposals have been done over the years has varied pretty widely. Like we have this picture of like what a proposal looks like. Like but diamond rings didn't become like nearly universal until the 1940s. Like, getting down on one knee wasn't widespread until the 1800s. It was common for a while for a man to ask his friend to propose on his behalf. Like all that to say, like. We don't really know for sure like, if what Ruth is doing here is common for this time or if it really is as weird as it sounds. Right? But we don't have any other record of any proposals like this. Right? But it is possible that like, this is just how things happened back then, but probably not. Right? What is clear, though, is that this is not what Naomi had in mind. Right? When Naomi hatched this plan, like, her concern was for Ruth. Right, for finding a home for Ruth. For Ruth to get married and to have a family. So when she hatched this plan and proposed it to Ruth, she intentionally and conspicuously didn't mention the fact that Boaz was a guardian redeemer. In verse 1, or verse 2, she says, now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Like she could have said guardian redeemer right there, but she didn't. She said relative. She intentionally avoided using that term. Because for Boaz to marry Ruth as a guardian redeemer would have been very costly to him. It would have involved buying back Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech's land, and giving it to Naomi. 
to be a guardian redeemer would have involved having a child with Ruth that would have carried Elimelech in Naomi's name rather than his own. And Naomi, in hatching this plan, didn't want Ruth to be put off by, or didn't want Boaz to be put off by that. She didn't want that to stand in the way of Boaz agreeing to marry Ruth. So she doesn't tell Ruth to mention the guardian redeemer thing. But then practically the first words out of Ruth's mouth, Ruth's mouth are, you are a guardian redeemer. Ruth wants to make sure that Naomi is well cared for, which will only happen if Boaz not only marries her, but marries her agreeing to be a guardian redeemer. That's a big ask. It will cost Boaz greatly. But despite the fact that he is groggy, that he has just woken up, he responds by saying, in verse 10, The Lord bless you, my daughter. He replied, This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. So interestingly, the phrase, woman of noble character, it's the same phrase that's used in, in Proverbs 31 right, to describe the woman of, or the wife of noble character right, that the, the proverb writer praises there. Right. And also, right, in the Hebrew ordering of the Bible, in the Hebrew scriptures, right, the book of Ruth follows immediately after the book of Proverbs. And so Proverbs ends with chapter 31 and this description of a woman of noble character. And on the very next page is the book of Ruth. Like the Ruth is this picture of, a, of the Proverbs 31 woman, like, enacted. And Boaz sees this quality in her. And because of that, he desires to marry her as a guardian redeemer, even though it will cost him greatly. There's just one problem. Verse 12 and 13 say, Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here tonight and in the morning. If he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. A lot of times... People want to like picture Ruth, the book of Ruth, as like this great love story. Right? But like, well, there's another guy, and if he wants to marry you, great. Right? It's not exactly Shakespeare or some other romance novel, right? Like, if somebody else wants to do it, fine. But if not, sure. Right? Like, that's not like the deep romantic love. Right? But Boaz is committed to like, the right order of doing these things. There is someone who is more closely related to Naomi than, and Ruth, right, who has the right of redemption first. And so Boaz, being an upstanding man, won't usurp this man's right to do that. And then in verse 14 we continue, So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. And here again, it just reinforces what a risky plan this was. Like, how easily misinterpreted this could all have been. Like, that Boaz had concerned that no one can know that a woman came to the threshing floor. Because right? it will look bad. 
Anyone who saw a woman leaving Boaz's threshing floor in the morning would jump to some very strong conclusions. That came in 15. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. So he gives her this measure, these six measures of barley, probably as a sign of his intentions to follow through on what he just said. So Boaz gives Ruth a gift, and they go their separate ways before it's light enough for anyone to recognize them or to see what's happening. And that brings us to the end of the interaction, for now, between Boaz and Ruth. And then in the last three verses, Ruth goes back to Naomi and gives a report. Verse 16, When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her, and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. And so, chapter 3, just like each of the first two chapters, ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. Chapter 1 ended with us wondering if Naomi and Ruth were even going to survive. Chapter 2 saw their survival be ensured, but left us wondering if Ruth would live with Naomi forever. And now, chapter 3 has shown us that the hope for solution to the problem of chapter 2, it shows us the solution, but it leaves us wondering if that will all pan out. And so, like, they're less wondering, like, will Boaz actually marry Ruth? Like, what is going to happen? And you can just imagine, right, the, the tension and the, the uncertainty that Naomi and Ruth must have felt if they waited for a report. Like, is this all going to work out? Is this going to happen? But here's the thing, right? Like, from our perspective, like, all we have to do to learn how things turn out is just, like, Turn the page and read the next chapter. And it's not a very long chapter we have to read. Like it's 22 verses. And like, so sometimes like when I'm in the middle of a good book, I come to the end of a chapter and I'm like, I should you know, stop reading and go do something else. But like the chapter ends on a cliffhanger. I'll like page ahead and like see how long the next chapter is. Right? If it's not that long, like, sure, I'll read that one too. And so, like, in this case, like, the next chapter is only 22 verses. It'd be, it's really easy to go ahead and just finish the book. So you know what happens. You know what finds out, how it turns out. But when we do that, it's going to miss a lot of the tension in the story. We don't necessarily feel how the characters in the story must have felt in that moment. Like, we just rush to the end and we see the happy ending and it's over. But the problem is, like, that's not how life works. When we find ourselves in hard and intense situations, we can't just turn the next page real fast and see what happens. We're all living in the middle of the story. And we have no way of seeing the ending with perfect clarity. There's not even a way to look ahead and see how many pages are left. 
when we rush through the tension points in the books of the Bible, it's easy to miss what God wants to teach us about how to live in that tension. Right in here, and what we see in this chapter, like we see like what it looks like to live in the middle of the story. Like when Naomi and Ruth, when they hit this period of uncertainty, they didn't just sit back and wait for God to do something dramatic to show them what to do. They didn't let their uncertainty paralyze them. Instead, they took action and they trusted God with the result. One of the most helpful books I've ever read is a book by Kevin DeYoung called Just Do Something. And as the title suggests, it is a call, in his words, to not spiritualize our inability to make decisions in the quest to discover God's will. He argues that as long as your actions don't violate any teachings of Scripture, that any actions kind of fit with your God-given wisdom, then you should feel freedom and you should feel confidence to take action, to just do something. But all too often, we want God to show us exactly how to act in a given situation. We want God to tell us whether to take that new job or not, whether to marry that person or not, whether to move to a new state or not. But DeYoung says this, God is not a magic eight ball we shake up and peer into whenever we have a decision to make. He is a good God who gives us brains, shows us the way of obedience, and invites us to take risks for him. We know God has a plan for our lives. That's wonderful. The problem is, we think he's going to tell us that wonderful plan before it unfolds. We feel like we can know and need to know what God wants every step of the way. But such preoccupation with finding God's will, as well-intentioned as the desire may be, is more folly than freedom. Yes, God has a specific plan for our lives. And yes, we can be assured that he works things for good in Christ Jesus. And yes, looking back, we will often be able to trace God's hand in bringing us to where we are. But while we are free to ask God, God for wisdom, he does not burden us with the task of divining his will of direction for our lives ahead of time. We should stop looking for God to reveal the future to us and remove all risks from our lives. We should start looking to God, his character and his promises, and thereby have confidence to take risks in his name. And that's what Naomi and Ruth did. They looked to God. They looked at his character, at his promises, and they acted. They took a risk in hatching this plan, and they trusted that God was at work in it for their good. That's what this passage should do for us. It should encourage us to take risks for the glory of God. Confident that God knows the future and is able to use our actions for good. God has told us all that we need to know about the past and the future to give us that kind of confidence. In sending Jesus to die on the cross on our behalf, 
to forgive our sins, God displayed both his love for us and his ability to bring about his perfect will despite man's intentional efforts to stop it. And if God can bring about good purposes in the face of direct opposition, surely he can bring about his good purposes through our risk-taking action when our desire is to glorify him. Then in, then in the future, in promising that Jesus will come again, that he will make all things new, that God gives us the confidence that no matter what obstacles or trials we may face, in the end, Jesus wins. And if we are united to Christ by faith, we win along with him. Naomi hatched a risky plan in the face of uncertainty. Without a direct command from God, she didn't see a vision, as far as we can tell, of this plan. She just laid out this plan. And as we'll see next week, God used this plan, this risky, audacious, questionable plan, to make Ruth the great grandmother of David, the direct ancestor of Jesus. So my hope is that we will feel boldness, we'll feel confidence to take similar risks, knowing that if our desire is to honor God and our convictions are to obey what's clearly revealed in the Bible, that as we take those risks, God has already guaranteed for us a victory in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we... praise you that you are a God who is all-powerful, and so you use even our uncertainty, even our failure at times, to achieve your good and glorious purposes. That we, we desire to be obedient to you, to live in accordance with what you revealed in your word for us about how to live. God, we confess there are times when we don't know for sure the right way to step forward in this situation. But we do know that you are a good God. And even as we step forward in uncertainty, Because of your awesome power, you are at work to bring about your good purposes. We may not always see them clearly in the moment. We may not always see them clearly until eternity. But we trust in your goodness and your ability to bring about your good purposes. So God, as we leave here. Would you fill us with a desire to live lives that honor you, to be obedient to your word? But God, when we're not sure what that looks like in a situation where we have confidence and boldness to step out in faith anyway, trusting that you will work. How freeing it is that 
your plans don't hinge on any one action of mine. That you are at work. You know the future. You've guaranteed us a good future in Jesus. That will we be able to leave here living life boldly and confidently as we seek to honor and glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you leave here this morning, as you go like, desiring to take risks to live boldly for the glory of Jesus, you are dismissed.